Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch, and it's ready to be cranked up starting tonight. For those still in need of a game book, stop by your local game or bookshop, or check out the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Okay, so we've got a bit of housekeeping to get to at the top of the show. The first thing we need to discuss is how far the reach of the broadcast signal that the gear the group set up last week is going to be. I think I've mentioned on more than one occasion that I geek like this from time to time, so I did my own brand of Google Foo and tried to work it out. And yes, I realize I'm trying to apply real-world physics and electronics to a fantasy world, but in the interests of telling as accurate a story as I can, I kind of thought we should do this. For the maximum power of a shortwave transmitter, which is essentially what we're dealing with, the maximum distance is about 90 miles. If you're dealing with military-grade gear, you can add about 20 miles to that, and that's without satellites and such, since I don't believe we actually have any of those in Fallout. So, the overall distance for the gear our group picked up and set up is 120 miles, and that's a radius. Weather will impact that somewhat. And I'm running my numbers based off of setting the dish up on top of the arch. If it's on top of the dome, we need to shave about 10 miles or so off. And that's due to some buildings being in the way. And if it's on top of Diamond Pass, it'd be a total of 20 to 25 miles shorter for the same reason. I'm not going to get into the science and technology, but the TLDR is that the more that is in way of the signal, the shorter the range it can cover. So, the only way they're getting a response of any kind is if the transmission comes from within the radius the dish covers. The other thing we need to cover comes from questions I've gotten a couple of times recently, and that's concerning the fact that I've noted once or twice that my group tends to communicate with each other over distance. Since there's not really rules for that in the book, many listeners have wondered how we're doing this. The reality behind this is that I'm using some GM fiat on this because I know I'm not going to have my entire group for a session very much anymore, and it's inevitable that one of the characters that doesn't have their player will be needed for something. So, this makes it a bit more convenient for the players to get what they need from those characters without having to send runners at them and then wait and yada 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 yada. One could argue, if you'd like, that since I've got two Mr. Handy robots in the group, they're communicating between each other using shortwave, and since they've been in separate groups frequently recently, that would allow for what we're doing easier. Either way, I figured I'd give you the 411 on why and how we're doing that, so we've got some sort of stated reason. And just when I thought I'd covered everything, I realized I have one more piece of business to take care of before we can build, and that concerns the character sheet for Mackenzie Cook that I promised would be out by about midweek. I can't blame anybody but myself for that one, and I just let time get away from me. So it'll be up shortly, if it's not already, I promise. I finally managed to get it done earlier this week, so when it gets on, depends on when Gabe's got the time to do it, and since he works more than I do, it might be a day or two. Still, Mackenzie Cook isn't going to play a big part in the game for a bit, so we really don't need it. I just wanted to address it because I promised it and I didn't get it out on time. Okay, so that's the housekeeping taken care of. Time to build. But you know the drill. We recap last week, then we build new. The very first thing we did was to level the group up, then we picked up where we left off the previous week. The group was standing inside the former offices of Jessup Chemicals with their communication gear in hand. 
They also had the name of the person who'd sold it to Donahue, and they knew they'd need to track him down at some point. We began by having the group setting up the transmission dish for the gear, and once they'd done that, Paladin Zane sent out a message for her superiors, then left Scribe Cullen to monitor the gear. The group then headed off to find Dawes, who was the man Donahue pointed out had sold him the gear. Through some checking, they found he frequents a club called the Red Light Club. They also know, if they spoke with Victor, that he's interested in having a conversation with Dawes and asked that Dawes be brought to him. The group scouted the area and tailed Dawes out when he left. They confronted him, and he admitted he knows nothing about the group that jumped the Brotherhood, and from everything they were able to figure out, Dawes was not lying. So we ended the session with the group in exactly the same spot they were in when we began, empty-handed. However, as we pick up this week, we do have something we need to deal with, and that's Dawes. I mentioned last week that the group could do whatever they wanted, but we also noted Victor wants him. So let's assume the group had spoken with him and knows he wants Dawes delivered to him. This is another one of those deals where we could put some roadblocks in their way in the form of raiders, and if you'd like to do so, go ahead and do it. My group tends to work better these days without the constant encounters, so we'll set this up to get them back to the office in the pass. Well, let me get a couple suggestions out there before the pass meeting. The group needs to figure out how they want to handle getting Dawes to the pass. We noted last week that he's drunk as all get out, so convincing him to do what they want him to do shouldn't be too difficult. The question is, how do they want to do it? There's a lot of options, and I think them figuring out how they want to work it out could make for some fun and a lighthearted moment. So, back to the pass. See what I did there? The guards on the gate will let the group right through, and no matter how they bring Dawes in, they're not asking questions. Bruno will be outside the third base saloon, and he'll get the group's attention and direct them inside, then back to Victor's office. However, once they deposit Dawes inside, Victor will ask that they leave, and he's not going to take no for an answer. Needless to say, that's probably going to be the last we see of poor old Dawes, but we've at least left the door open for something else. So, now we've got the group standing around with their hands in their pockets and nothing else to do. I think we'll help ourselves a bit here and decide that since they were up for as long as they were, it's time to head back to their base of operations and grab some shut-eye. Zane and the other two Brotherhood of Steel members with her, if they're all here, will return to wherever they've been staying to do the same thing. Once they get up, they'll find a note tacked to the door of their base. The outer envelope has the same flowing script they saw in the notes that they followed to the Brotherhood of Steel previously. Not for the eyes of the Brotherhood. When they open the note, here's what they get. Things aren't what they appear to be. While I did send you to get the Brotherhood members free, they are not here for the reasons they say they are. They'll deny that until the day they die, so confronting them about it is futile. What you need to do is prove it. If you're interested in doing that, you might want to check out the old Timmins Toy Factory in North St. Louis. No signature on the note, that's been the standard. Now, the group has heard of that old factory once or twice, but none of them have actually ever gone there before, since that requires going through an area that's rumored to be haunted, and haunted tends to mean feral ghouls coming out the wazoo. But by this point, our group is high enough level and well-armed enough that dealing with something like that shouldn't be a big deal. Mine still has a couple of mini-nukes on them, so they'll probably head off to do this without much issue. That being said, we've let them off the hook one time too many, so it's time for an encounter on the way north. 
Now, we did note the last time they were up there that there was death and destruction everywhere. But as we know, nature abhors a vacuum. So there's a batch of raiders who've already taken up residence here for themselves. And yes, I know I spent a lot of time in a previous episode setting up various factions in the north, but the overall response to it was more of a yawn than anything else. So the incursion from the group across the river allows for a reset. So let's have a raider group hit. One raider boss, stats on page 387, and a number of raider veterans equal to the number of group members, and those stats are on page 390. It shouldn't be too hard, but it's not intended to be. Once they're through that, they've got another 20 minutes or so walk to the north, and they can start to see the old factory about a mile or so out. And that's where things get really interesting. They hear the roar, then they see the death claw. Stats on page 342, and it will chase them down until they either attack it and kill it, or it kills them. It acts somewhat strategically, which means it'll be trying to keep them away from the factory. Again, This shouldn't be a death sentence, but it's entirely possible it could be. Oh, and if they're looking for feral ghouls, there aren't any. And one would guess the death clause the reason why. With the fight finished, they've now got a clear path to the factory. The doors are huge and apparently locked tight. But by now, the group's also checking for various explosives. So let's do perception plus explosives difficulty three to find the hinge traps. Same role difficulty two to remove them. Once that's done, they can pick the lock. Perception plus lockpick, difficulty three. The doors open on a massive factory floor, but the group is very surprised to see what they find. Instead of factory equipment or assembly line gear, they find the very last thing they would expect to find. A Brotherhood of Steel dropship. It's got bullet and laser blast damage to it, but it's apparent from checking it out that none of that damage would have been enough to bring it down. Checking inside, they find room for four, and it's also apparent they exited of their own volition since the belts were undone properly and there's no sign of a rush to get out. They also see that the minigun platform is there, but the minigun isn't. Basically, all the signs lead to this bird being flown to this approximate spot, landed, and somehow stored in here. There's no proof as to whose ship this is, but it's not that hard to put two and two together and realize this is the ship the Brotherhood of Steel members flew in, which leads to the question as to what really happened to them and why they've been lying to the group all along. Now, the group might decide they want to tap into the console of the ship to try to download any information on it. If they do that, it's intelligence plus science difficulty two. It's not a hard thing to do, but the second they get in, they hear a computerized voice. Unauthorized access attempted. Brotherhood countermeasures activated. Vertibird will self-destruct in 30 seconds. Which will be more than enough time to get out of the factory before the whole thing blows up. Backing up a bit, though, the group might check around to see if they can find anything of value. There's a lot of junk in here, and it's apparent it's been moved around to look like random debris. They will find something, though, and it's a hollow tape. When they get the chance to play it, and let's face it, they'll need to play it when they're alone, they'll hear a man's voice. And while there's a lot that seems to be missing, they pick up the conversation here. Tell them whatever you have to in order to gain their confidence. If you can get on their good side, they can get you close to Victor. And once you've got him, we can work to draw out the others we're looking for. So taking everything into account, the group's got just enough time to get out of and clear of the factory before things blow up. 
And now they've got some interesting information to work with. The question is whether or not the vertebrate they just found ties to the four member of the Brotherhood of Steel they've been working with or whether there's another group running around out there. They've got a lot to think about and they'll be thinking and talking about it as they head back to the pass, only to see a lot of smoke rising from it as they get close. The walls are still up and the guards are on high alert on the outside. They call out to the group when they get close enough. Somebody hit the third base saloon, blew it all to hell. Bruno's outside the remains of the saloon watching the fire brigade putting out the rest of the fires on the third base side of the stadium. He notices the group as they approach and he speeds up to them. Those four ingrates took Victor and set the bar on fire. Said they'd used us for what they needed. Now we were a liability. And I think we'll end this build on a cliffhanger. Look, I realize we are coming up super short this week, but I've been having some dental issues over the past couple of weeks. So in addition to having my jaw in almost constant pain, concentrating to be right's been real hard. So I'd rather stop while I'm ahead and before I start writing stuff that sounds like it's coming out of a fever dream. Of course, that's assuming that what I've written to this point was any good. Guess it's a matter of opinion. Anyway, we will pick up here next week and see where we go. In the meanwhile, I'd request you check out Role Playing History. That's our show where we check out the history of games, systems, creators, eh, whatever tickles our fancy. This week, we're deep diving D&D 5th edition, and we might have just found out some stuff you didn't already know. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. I also wanted to remind you that Archon 46 is coming up two weeks from today, Friday, September 29th through Sunday, October 1st. I've been promoting the hell out of it for over a month, so what I'll say at this point is that if you're even remotely interested in coming to see all of us in person, check out the Archon website, A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L dot org. All Fallout role-playing game materials used on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. For all the products produced by Modifius Entertainment, check out their website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all their license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We're all over social media, so check out the info box for this episode or our website, badgmproductions.net. Next week, we see just what the Brotherhood of Steel group is doing in town, what Victor has to do with it, and what our group's going to do about it. But that's next week, folks. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. Thank you.